0: All right, everybody. Two texts for today. The first one is Isaiah 9, 2 through 7. Uh, Isaiah 9, 2 through 7. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you, according to the joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of his burden, and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle, and garments rolled in blood, will be used for burning and fuel of fire. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice, from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Uh, second one is from Luke 2, Luke 2:11 2, through 14. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord, and this will be assigned to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those upon whom his favor rests. All right, so fourth week in Advent, peace week for us. Um... And instead of starting somewhere near the beginning, let's start in the middle of the Gospel of John. So let's start uh, in a place where Jesus is kind of reflecting on his imminent ascension, and he's talking to the disciples about, and to the gathered crowd about the fact that he's going to roll out and send the Holy Spirit eventually. But it's a great place to start because it starts to get at, what is unique about and what is distinctive about the vision of peace that Jesus argues for. So John 14 25 through 27, Jesus says, All this I have spoken while still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives, do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. So I guess maybe starting point for thinking about the you know, week in Advent about peace and the coming of peace in the person of Jesus Christ is just to ask the question, what is the difference between the peace that he gives and the peace that the world gives? And it's a distinction that has launched like a million pious evangelical reflections on the true peace of the soul. You know, that they might have peace externally, but the real peace that... Jesus offers is a peace which is internal, which is a peace that's about being made right with God. And, and, and that sense of peace is not wrong. It's an important part of the peace that Advent brings. But I think in, in John, and I don't know, as you see in Isaiah, and even as we see a little bit in Luke, that the peace that is that comes in the person of Jesus Christ is more than just either a sense of internal stability, internal comfort, and more than just the idea of a lack of conflict it's a much more radical vision of peace it's a vision of peace that's about transforming the world and making it whole again so i don't know there might be generally two models for peace that jesus was talking about when he was talking to this audience of folks and what they would have thought about when they thought about peace there's like a greek model for peace and there's a roman model for peace so get ready to get your mythology on the Greek model for peace, and the Greek word for peace is Irene, and you know when that's the word Jesus uses here in uh, the Gospel of John. And Irene did mean peace; it meant like the lack of conflict. But it was actually the name of a goddess. And so I don't know that Zeus had some daughters. One daughter, Irene, she was peace. Then there was a daughter that was Deke, which is justice or I don't know, victory sorta. There was also a daughter named uh, what was it? uh, eunomia so good law and you know the greek vision of peace is interesting because when people talked about these three i don't know daughters of zeus they were like the thing that would make a city a good city to live in you'd have a city where there was peace where there was justice and where there was good law or good order and the funny thing is if you look at the statues of this goddess irene she always carried two babies who were what are two babies agricultural prosperity and wealth, (laughs) okay? So the basic idea was if you had stability in your community, you'd be able to, I don't know, grow a bunch of crops and make a bunch of money. So that was kind of the Greek model for peace, although I want you to notice some things about it. One of the things I want you to notice about it is that peace for them was a separate thing from justice. And peace for them was not only a separate thing from justice, but peace for them was a separate thing from good law. So in their model, peace was this kind of like, I don't know, part of three different things that might make a city or a community work well. And as the Greeks would have thought about it, they would have thought that peace was like order, basically. That it was, uh, you know, uh, a city was peaceful when that city could continue government as normal, yada, yada, yada. That was their kind of bit Greek vision of it. It was like good order, but they didn't really ask the question of the justice of the order. So that's kind of how the Greeks thought about it. And I don't know, how many times at Resurrection Church have we gotten salty about the Romans? The Romans had an even worse vision of it. Pax Romana, as you all know, and as we've talked about before, (laughs) was basically the idea of a vision of peace that was enforced by military force. Like, Pax Romana was basically defined by rolling all over the world and going into different communities and telling people to accept the emperor. And their vision of peace was something like, Sure, you had to give up your religion, and you had to give up your freedom, and you had to pay us taxes, but at least there'd be peace. Because peace in that instance meant, hey, no one's going to rise up and overthrow the government, and we can protect you from the barbarians. When Jesus talks about bringing a different kind of peace, he's talking about distinguishing his peace from the peace of the Greeks or the peace of the Romans. He's talking about a vision of peace that's not just about the absence of conflict, And it's not about trading your freedom or trading justice for the idea of just making things stable or secure. He had a vision of peace that was much, much, much broader than that. We see it in the text from Isaiah. We see it in the text from Luke. And we see it even in the vision of peace that the early Christian church kind of used as a way of criticizing Rome and criticizing the Greek understanding, too. I mean... Think about the model in John that Jesus is talking about. It would have been completely uh, antagonistic to maybe even opposite the Roman vision of peace. Like the the Roman vision of peace was you had a centurion in the town square. The dude had a really big sword, and so no one acted up. Jesus is saying, hey, I'm going to leave. I'm going to go sit on the throne with the Father. I'm going to send a helper, and that helper is going to bring about a vision of peace that is different from... The one that's just about I don't know micromanaging uh, stability through the imposition of order. Jesus's model of peace was about so much more than the model of peace that says it was just about stability. But the model of peace was about I don't know a vision. It was instead of like the Greek and the Roman idea, it was tied up with a vision of justice, a vision of good rule, and a vision of good order. And so. Whenever folks in the early church used their version of the Greek word irene, they had in their mind another much more powerful word for peace that we all know. Trey? Shalom. (laughs) Shalom. The early Christian vision of peace and the vision of peace that Jesus is thinking about is tied to and is an extension of the idea of shalom. Now, the Greek word irene comes from a root word which means something like to tie together or to make whole, to bring about unity. And it's the word that the early church used to translate the Hebrew term shalom, which is a gorgeous term, beautiful term for the concept of peace. Shalom has this sense of like bringing wholeness and harmony out of divided parts. Shalom has this sense of like bringing about completeness, like of being at the place where you were supposed to be, of of reaching a home where you felt like you were perfectly fit, of kind of, of a proper fitting together of the series of disparate parts. And when you hear the Hebrew word shalom, and the early church's use of Arene as a translation of, sh- of shalom, I think maybe the first thing you should think about, it's an idea we've talked about here before, is the very Jewish idea of tikkun ilam, to put the world back together. And the project of putting the world back together was not just about making the world stable again. It wasn't just about, I don't know, good agricultural production and wealth and prosperity. But it was about a vision of peace that said that peace required a sense of justice and rightness with each other and justice and rightness with God. And so the vision of peace that Advent brings, the vision of peace we're supposed to reflect on, should, just like we talked about the idea of holy discomfort, should mess up our vision of peace and stability a little bit. It should invite us to think about a peace that transforms the world. It should invite us to think about a peace which is only sustainable because it brings about a condition of shalom, of fullness, of, of, of unity, of the, not just the absence of conflict, but of the world being made right, of us living together in a church, of us living together internally, of us living together in a society where the question is not how do we avoid conflict, but the st- instead the question is how do we bring about this kind of full state of shalom. And if you have, I don't know, doubts about whether or not that's the vision of peace that they would have been thinking about, just look at that text in Isaiah 9 that we read, right? It's a text about peace ostensibly, but it's talking about like garments rolled up in blood and burned in fire and dividing the spoils of a war. Why is it that that becomes one of the preferred texts for thinking about the condition of peace? Well, as we know, like, it is a messianic text. And of course, what's beautiful about it is, it's a messianic text that introduces a really awfully weird vision of a messiah you know a child a a person who is able to bring about the right order restore the throne of david and you know will divide the spoils of the oppressors and break the oppressors rods and all those things and I figure as much as we talk about the idea of peace around Christmas, I can imagine it in my mind, printed in, I don't know, some nice golden font on a yellow card or a red card or something. And it, uh, it has a very kind of easy, sentimental vision of peace in it. But the peace that Isaiah is predicting that comes about through the child Messiah is not a peace that is premised on just avoiding conflict. It's a peace that's premised on tearing down every element of the orders of sin and death and destruction that oppress and or harm us. It's a vision of peace which requires a transformation of the world. It's a vision of peace where, at least as in the text in Isaiah, as we've talked about Christmas being a declaration of war before, requires a little bit of declaration of war on the orders of sin, death, and destruction. It's a vision of peace which is substantive. It's a vision of peace that that verse in Isaiah declares what? That as a result of it, the increase of his government and peace will be without end. It's a vision of peace that is so much more than temporary stability. It's a vision of peace of a world that is made right, where the relationship between God and the world, between the world and each other, and between even ourselves and our relationships to one another are made different. The child Messiah who is born like any other human being, who is a son, he's derived, he's the fruit of another in some sense, assumes the full power of God the Father, but the child Messiah also restores The nation of Israel embodies an internal and omnipotent righteousness which makes possible a vision of peace that is already here but not yet fully realized that settles every inequity of the existing order that takes every element of the orders of sin and death and destruction and condemns them as damnable and not only imperfect, but and, and but but outright unjust, and therefore this vision of peace holds open a vision of a kingdom that is endless and, and, and limitless in its perfection that is founded on a vision of love without oppression or opposition or division, but instead it is a peace that is derived out of an overflowing of christ's agopic love that 's the vision of peace that is written into the version of of Christmas to the narrative of, uh, of Isaiah. And I don't know, the kicker is to maybe look at the way that Shalom is announced there, that vision of Shalom, that vision of peace and justice in, in the angels' announcements to the shepherds. And I don't know, I end up preaching about this one all the time, but man, it's one of my favorite parts of all of Scripture. It's the only way that you could have true and full shalom. The announcement of Jesus Christ's coming, the fact that it happens to these shepherds sitting on this hill to me has always been mind-bogglingly beautiful because once you realize that peace is not simply the absence of conflict but a making right of the world that levels every hierarchy that makes one person more important than another, once you realize that the vision of peace that is built in to Jesus' world is built upon a fully realized vision of agape love in which there's no division or, or violence and sin. The one that conquers death and all those things. Well, gosh, you've got a vision of peace that is transformative. That's not just about maintaining the status quo or avoiding conflict, but is about realizing the concrete Conditions of the kingdom. It's a vision of peace in which we can't really separate a vision of the kingdom from the vision of an end world which is made perfect in Christ's presence. I mean, think about that initial announcement and how it implies, not just in what is said, but in how it's said, a fundamental reordering of the world. That the sovereign God, the God of all existence, that the sovereign God opens the heavens and has the entirety of the heavenly host speak not in the temple not to the governing authorities not to the religious authorities but to these poor dirty unclean despised subjects of a colonial power who are sitting out in a field and probably more tired than you can possibly imagine who did work that was taken to be socially dirty even despicable who were basically the dregs of society that when heaven opens up and declares the joy of a sovereign God who will bring about peace, that announcement is made to those men specifically and not to other people. That announcement is made to people who are completely locked out of the order of religious redemption and of religious piety that was the most marginal folks that you could have possibly imagined in the entirety of ancient Middle Eastern, or ancient Near Eastern society, and that heaven opens up and says to those men that there is a vision of peace should change the way we think about the peace that is declared in it because it's not just a piece that's appropriate for religious leaders, it's not just a piece that's appropriate for people who govern, it is a piece that is appropriate for these men who ultimately had nothing, who were seen as outcasts and who would not have been any meaningful way integrated into the religious practices for the day. And if you stop for a moment and you think about that piece being presented to us in Advent, if you stop for a moment and think about God opening up the heavens in that way. And if you see peace not just as stability or not just as an internal sense of comfort, but instead as a substantive vision of what it means to establish the kingdom of God. And you see that it starts at the place that is most distant and most marginal and is the place where the victory is in the declaration of that peace to those men. Then all of a sudden the peace that Christmas The the peace that Christmas foretells, the peace that Jesus Christ's coming brings, the shalom, the condition of shalom that comes from him is so beautiful and radically transformative that it ought to cause us to be even more discomforted with the world that we sit in. It ought to cause us to see how disconnected the right and righteousness of God are from the world as it exists. It ought to help us see how deeply and how desperately we are in need of the graces of God and the power of cross and the resurrection and that we need to just yearn for and to to reach for and to struggle for a shalom that is so much deeper than a tacit peace defined by the lack of conflict or our own comfort. And therefore we call for the advent of the coming of Jesus Christ incarnate who can change us and change the world and who can make things right and who will, by dying, make the world right again and by rising, defeat death. And in doing so, he calls us to die and calls us to rise and make the world right again and to give ourselves fully over to the miracle that is Christmas. And that's the point, I think, of preparing our hearts at Advent if it's to become more than just like part of the ritual that passes the season. It's to realize that promise of Isaiah, of a world that is made different. It is to realize the possibility that that announcing this to those men, those shepherds on that hill, that the world was made different, not just because of the substance of the announcement, but because of the means of the announcement. And ultimately, the extension of it is that a child born in a manger under utterly powerless circumstances will make the world right again. Amen. Questions or talk?